Thank you for listening to this podcast on treatment options for patients with advanced and intermediate HCC. I'm Tonke de Jong and I'll be moderating today's podcast of Ad Independent Medical Education. This podcast is an initiative of Ad and developed by HCC Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of oncology. The podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the HCC Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Court2Ed website. I'm happy to welcome today's two experts in the field of HCC. Could you please introduce yourself, Professor Dr. Harding? Thank you very much. I'm Jim Harding, a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in the United States. I focus on drug development for liver and bile duct cancers. It's currently a very exciting time for the treatment of liver cancers. Uh, Systemic therapy for liver cancer is evolving rapidly. In 2017 and before, the field only had one systemic therapy option for patients with locally advanced or metastatic disease. Now, uh, there are over 10 with regulatory approvals, and much of the disease is now uh, treated with immune-based therapy. And so it's an amazing time for sure. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for that clear intro. I'm delighted to also welcome Professor Dr. Saab for this podcast episode. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be among you today and talking about this very important topic of liver cancer. I'm a hepatologist at UCLA, been in practice here for about two decades. And it's been so rewarding to see this evolution of care people with liver disease. Liver cancer is a major public health concern. The rates remain very, very high. And this is being fueled by an epidemic of fatty liver that we're seeing throughout the whole globe. Liver cancer is very special because you're not just talking about the liver cancer itself. But you're talking about the soil, the setting in which it, it evolved. And by this definition, this is the treatment is really a partnership with the hepatologist and the oncology colleagues. Thank you, Professor Dr. Sa. Today's session is all about systemic treatment options for patients with advanced and intermediate HCC, with a focus on the treatment options for patients who are not eligible for immunotherapy in first line. So there's a lot going on these days in the field of HCC, and I think we first need to understand the systemic treatment options for patients with advanced and intermediate HCC. So perhaps we can start off by giving a short overview of the systemic treatment options by looking into the key clinical trials and guidelines. Dr. Harding? You know, historically, the original uh, systemic therapy that was used for patients with um, advanced liver cancer was serafinib. And this is a multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitor that was assessed on two clinical trials, the SHARP study and the Asia-Pacific study. Both of these studies confirmed that serafinib improved overall survival over placebo or best supportive care and became the reference standard for over a decade. In the last five to six years, we've seen a huge explosion though in potential treatment options in the first and second line. REFLECT was a clinical study that assessed serafinib when compared to another tyrosine kinase inhibitor called lenvatinib. 
The endpoint of this study was non-inferiority, and lenvatinib was non-inferior to serafinib and became a potential option in the front line. Much of the excitement, though, has moved towards the immune synapse, and can we block immune suppressive signals in the tumor, leading to an attack of the immune system, uh, leading to benefit? And the two pivotal studies on this were I Am Brave 150, uh, which assessed the uh, monoclonal antibody to PDL1, atizolizumab, plus the bevacizumab, an anti-VEGF antibody and compare that to serafinib with an endpoint of overall survival with the intention of superiority. This study met its endpoint and in secondary endpoints had a higher objective response, longer PFS, and was uh, quite safe and tolerable. The next uh, approach was combination immunotherapy with the anti-PD, PD-L1 therapy, durvalumab uh, plus a single priming dose of um, the anti-CTLA-4 antibody, tremilumumab, comparing it to serafinib. Uh, within this study, there was also an arm of single-agent development, but the primary endpoint was superiority for overall survival compared to serafinib, and the combo was superior in terms of overall survival, had a higher objective response rate, similar PFS. But as we see with immunotherapy, a, a tail of the curve was promising. And, and this too now is in the armamentarium of the front line. There are several second line options that are TKI based, but you know this is really where the work is in the front line now. And so when we approach a patient, it really comes to a shared decision-making model of cancer care, where we weigh the potential risks and benefits, as well as medical contraindications that might modify our therapeutic st- therapies. Yeah, that's a clear overview. Thank you for that. So I was wondering, now what would you do if you're going to treat a post-transplant recurrent patient with advanced HEC, Dr. Saab? That's a very good question for a variety of reasons. Number one, liver cancer is an indication for liver transplantation. And one of the challenges we have is there is a, a real risk of recurrent liver cancer in the new graft. So we have a number of therapists for liver cancer. The problem is that immunotherapy work by turning on the immune system. People who've had a liver transplant, and by that definition, any solid organ transplantation are taking immunosuppressive drugs, drugs that, that tune down the immune system to prevent rejection. Well, if now you introduce a, a medication that stimulates your immune system, that can lead to rejection, graft failure, and even death in the treatment of liver cancer. So as of today, 2023, immunotherapy is contraindicated in patients with liver cancer and had a solar organ transplantation like liver transplantation. Our first sign therapy will be a, a, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, a TKI, like Dr. Harding just uh, discussed. Okay, and would you agree on this approach, Dr. Harding? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, You know, there have been now some retrospective case series, one from the Mayo Clinic, another from the SEER database, where some patients with solid tumor liver transplants were treated with immunotherapy, and there is a high rate of graft rejection and uh, survival seemed poor. In my practice, I absolutely agree this is a contraindication. 
Yeah, and I think you touched upon this already, Dr. Saab, but why in this particular case and in other cases like this, can we not use immunotherapy? Oh, wonderful question. So in conditions and health conditions that you need to modulate your immune system, suppress it, like in people who have had a liver transplant, people who have autoimmune conditions, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, people who have colitis, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, they need to suppress your immune system for homeostasis, for lack of a better word. And now if you introduce a new stimulator, it really wrecks things and it could cause serious underlying health problems like exacerbation with arthritis, exacerbation of autoimmune liver disease, and of course, colitis. There are other individuals also where you might not consider IOs and those who, who have very advanced liver disease and also those who, for practical reasons, cannot be infused on a regular basis because of distance or what have you. So there is a, a pretty good subset of individuals who are not eligible for IOs as first-line therapy of their liver cancer. So if we would summarize those subgroups who are not eligible for IO first-line, who would they be, Dr. Harding? I think it would be, uh, as we stated, the prior liver transplant, HCC recurrence is the primary one. I think in those patients with uh, active or uncontrolled autoimmunity, this would be a relative contraindication. Uh, there are some data, even in these subsets, where you might be able to give an immunotherapy. However, you would need to do so with the aid of a rheumatologist and having their disease under control. There are, um, as uh, Dr. Saab said, a subset of patients for which whomever reason might decline or be inappropriate for intravenous therapy. And in those patients, a, a TKI would certainly be reasonable. And then in organ dysfunction, the field of IO in that space is still clarifying itself. It does appear that some subsets might be safe, but still ongoing work is required. And for those patients, so for those patient subgroups, how do you choose the right treatment? What guidelines do you use? And what do they say about these patient subgroups, Dr. Sapp? We have a number of guidelines that are available in the U.S. and in Europe and in Asia. The ones that we use here are the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines. These are, are based on, on expert opinion. Uh, they're also based on evidence-based research. And what they highlight is, what Dr. Hardy said, is immunotherapy. Uh, Tezobev is a preferred regimen for most people with liver cancer. But the society also adds that it's not a one-size-fits-all program. There are subsets, like Dr. Hardy and I have emphasized, that really benefit from other first-line therapy. Atezombev is not the only first-line therapy. And the oral TKI, Serafan, Lamatavap are also first-line therapy. And they play a very special role in the patient we just described, uh, patients who who have an impaired immune system, organ transfer recipients, people with autoimmune disease. And Dr. Hardy mentioned also people who have a practical concern to I.O. from distance and infusions and, and things of those nature. So the, the National Conference Cancer Network do highlight that there are individuals who benefit from a Tezobev, but there are also others 
which we consider um, oral TKIs as their first-line therapy for liver cancer. That's very clear. Thank you for that. Now let's move on to the overview of the treatment options for those patients that are not eligible for IO in first line. So I'm wondering, what are the main treatment options for these patients, Dr. Harding? In the subset that can't tolerate an immunotherapeutic or would not be a candidate, it's really based heavily on tyrosine kinase inhibitors. As you know, these uh, drugs have been uh, around for many years and have excellent preclinical data for impairing HCC. And as we'll talk about, high-level clinical data to improve uh, survival and control tumors. The two that have been tested to the highest level in the first line are uh, serafinib and lambatinib. And what are the main clinical trials around these TKIs? Could you tell us more about the efficacy and the safety data? So uh, serafinib, as uh, stated earlier, uh, was assessed on two trials. In a Western patient population, the SHARP study, and an Eastern patient population, the Asia-Pacific study, uh, similar in their entry and inclusion, advanced, locally treatment refractory, HCC, uh, required a biopsy. Patients were randomized to receive serafinib, 400 milligrams orally BID, uh, to placebo or best supportive care. A primary endpoint was the overall survival endpoint. And uh, in both studies, the overall survival was met. The median overall survival at that time to serafinib was somewhere of about 10 months. As time has gone on, um, as, as serafinib has been a control arm on many trials, the median survival has increased over time. That's now about 14 months in, in contemporary studies. And unclear as to why that is, but nonetheless, that's what the kind of benchmark is there. As serafinib rarely shrinks tumors, it's cytostatic, uh, so the response rate is less than 10%, but it, it does delay time to progression and improves progression-free survival. Its main toxicities are those seen with a TKI, dermatologic hand-foot syndrome, GI toxicity and mucositis, as well as hypertension, poor wound healing, though all manageable. Um, that was the benchmark for many years. I do think it is being displaced now with other drugs that we'll talk about too. Mm -hmm. So what about lenvatinib, Dr. Sapp? I think that the data for lenvatinib is, is as exciting as serafinib. The data for lenvatinib for liver cancer, unresectable liver cancer, comes from two major trials. One is called Reflect, where the Authors compared the efficacy and safety in levantinib with serafinib, and the others called the LEAP002, where the use of levantinib was uh, compared to a combination on levantinib and PEMPRO. So let's first talk about REFLECT, the, the study where the drug was compared directly with serafinib. That data is compelling because what it highlighted is that levantinib does a very good job in slowing down disease progression. What they found was that the overall response rate was 24%, and the median time to progression was 7.4 months. Overall survival was 13.6 months. Now, if we now jump to LEAP002, again, where we compare levantinib 
to Levanta Pembro, the results were, were equally exciting. One of the highlights of the study was that the overall results were similar to the two groups. In other words, there was not a major incremental improvement in response when you added Prempro to Levantinab. In that study, the overall survival in patients took Levantinab alone was 19 months. As Dr. Harney said, over time, these survival rates improved. And when you compare the survival rate with that from the reflect trial done a number of years ago, that was 13.6 months. Now, going back to LEAP002, again, the overall survival in the Levantinum R was 19 months. In the combination of PEMPRO and Levantinum, it was only a couple months longer at 21, not significantly different. So these two trials highlight the important role we play as Levantinum in our clinical practice as a potential first-line therapy. Thanks. Dr. Harding, what are the most common side effects that you see in your patients for these treatments and how do you manage toxicity? The toxicity is really based on the mechanism of action of the drug. They're both multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors and they target VEGF, uh, platelet-derived growth factors and others. Uh, when we look at the toxicities of serafinib and levatinib, actually based on the REFLECT study, the total number of adverse events or the proportion of adverse events is similar. But the types and severity of toxicity do differ. And that probably has to do with how these molecules act biochemically. They are different biochemically. For example, lenvatinib's main clinical toxicity that we see is uh, some gastrointestinal anorexia and weight loss as well as anti-VEGF mediated toxicities such as cardiovascular, hypertension, may be quite common with, with the medication. Additionally, we do see some you know, diarrhea, stomach upset, et cetera. Um, all of these have specific management guidelines. You know, in contrast, uh, serafinib uh, tends to have similar toxicities, but has a higher rate of hand-foot syndrome, where we see reddening and callousing of the hands and feet that can be quite painful and limit mobility and motion. And so really these things need to be kind of monitored and also you know, thought about when we select patients for these treatments. Uh, so for example, for either one of these, I do make sure we have a good assessment of the cardiovascular health of the patient. If they have hypertension, I'd like to see that controlled. We monitor that frequently throughout treatment with even home blood pressure cuff monitoring. Uh, for the dermatologic potential toxicities, I usually do a basic skin examination, uh, prescribe sort of emollients. Uh, there is some data for even prophylactic urea cream to prevent hand foot syndrome. And um, I engage dermatology when needed. Uh, for GI toxicity, there are supportive medications that might be used and I counsel patients on all of this. And of course, as we monitor these patients, we do see them at a set frequency where we're checking baseline laboratories uh, and performing physical exam to ameliorate this. I'm wondering, Dr. Saab, do you agree on that? Would you take the same approach as Dr. Harding? Oh, undoubtedly. Dr. Harding, that was, that was a great summary of the side effects. I, I don't think anybody could top that. I do want to say a couple of things. You know, these drugs have been around for a while now. 
and most are very comfortable with managing side effects. I like to say that the side effects are predictable. We know that serafinab has a higher uh, likelihood of causing hand foot reaction. We know that levantinib has a, a similar but different set of side effects, namely hypertension. So the side effects are predictable. They're manageable and they get better with intervention. It's important that when people are on therapy, we're able to assess them or office assess them on a regular basis because the sooner you can intervene on a side effect, the better the outcome is for the patient. We don't want to have a scenario where the patient has a hand foster reaction and doesn't want to take the medication ever again. And we have to make sure that we have timely intervention in our patient and see them on a regular basis. Don't wait for them to call us with a complaint. We've been proactive. In our practice, we'll, we'll see a patient two to four weeks after starting an tyrosine kinase inhibitor and then maybe a monthly after that. But we play a very active role, like Dr. Harding implied. Great. That's very clear. Thank you for that. So now that we come to the end of our podcast episode, what would be your main message for our listeners, Dr. Harding? The main message is the field has advanced rapidly. Immunotherapy is truly a preferred regimen for many patients in the frontline setting with liver cancer. The two that we've seen most data from are tezolizumab and bevacizumab, as well as the tremulimumab with trivalumab. That said, uh, there is a cohort of patients that may not be eligible for those therapies, and that could include patients who are post-liver transplant for liver cancer, those with an active or uncontrolled autoimmunity, those that just decline said therapy for various reasons, and perhaps even in, in, in a poor organ status function. And so we have to keep those in mind and use all potential therapies to the benefit of patients. Thank you for this clear message. Dr. Saab, would you have anything to add? Dr. Hardy mentioned way in the beginning of this podcast, this, this isn't a very exciting time for us in helping people with liver cancer to hold their hand and, and get them through the, this very debilitating process. I think the overlying theme of today's podcast is it's not a one-size-fits-all for everybody. There are subsets, cohorts, groups of individuals that do not benefit from, uh, from immunotherapy for uh, reasons Dr. Hardy mentioned. They're out of liver transplant. They have an autoimmune condition. These individuals will not benefit from immunotherapy. In contrast, we have another first-line therapy. It's also effective and it's also relatively safe. There are side effects, but like I mentioned, side effects are predictable and they get better with intervention. So it's a wonderful time. So we have different options for our patients and to make sure we tailor management according to the patient needs as they may exist. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Dr. Harding and Professor Dr. Saab for diving deeper into the systemic treatment options for HCC patients who are not eligible for IO in first line. I've learned a lot from your discussions, so thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, this was a great podcast, and I learned uh, so much from you, Dr. Saab, as always. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Harding. Uh, this is a great podcast. Uh, I learned a lot from this interview. I learned a lot from you, Dr. Harding, uh, and a world authority on liver cancer. And I think we all did it in advocacy of our patients with liver cancer. And we hope to continue our, our efforts uh, to improve their survival and their quality of life. Again, thank you, Dr. Harding. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. 
I'm really looking forward to the second episode of this series where we will discuss the right time to switch to second line therapy and enabling optimal sequencing for these patients. In the second episode, we will cover those second line treatment options such as rigoravenib, cabozantinib and ramucirumab. Make sure to listen to that podcast if you want to find out more about second line treatment therapies for advanced HCC patients. If you're interested in finding out more about HCC, then please visit cortoad.com and select Oncology. If you like this podcast, then don't forget to rate this episode or inform your colleagues about it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Cortuad Independent Medical Education. Please visit cortuad.com for more information.